Welcome to the Creative Writing Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Alexander Smith. This podcast is your place to hear brand new fiction and poetry from American creative writers. Today's fiction is by Kenneth Kim. Kenneth Kim is a writer currently residing in Los Angeles. His background includes an undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania and a master's degree in creative writing from San Francisco State University. His acclaimed novel, The Superhero Memoirs, is a lyrical rumination on the mysteries of modern love, loss, remembrance, and regret. Find it on Amazon.com. Narrating his story today is Rebecca Smith. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's start the story. Running Shoes by Kenneth Kim Copyright 2017 I turned 16 last week, but it hasn't changed my life the way I thought it might. I don't feel any different. I still chew on my thumbnail when I walk down the hallways at school, and I still can't talk to boys the way Nicole can, like they're normal people or something. Do you think I look too skinny in these jeans? She asks Mark Sanford before class, twirling around gracefully in front of him. No, he says, shaking his shaggy blonde head slowly, his languid gaze never leaving her butt. I don't know what it is guys have about girls' butts. Molly, Nicole said to me once when we were still in junior high. It's evolutionary. Like she knew what that meant and it explained everything. I only nodded and pretended I understood. Mark Sanford shifts his body comfortably in his chair as he looks over Nicole's jeans, and I can see the smooth ripple of muscle under his clothes as he moves, like hidden currents stirring under the surface of the ocean. I've seen him play football on our high school team. His movements are like violent explosions out on the field. But in class at school, everything about him seems slow, almost sleepy, as if the powerful forces that drive him so fiercely during the games are at rest, slumbering deep inside some hidden chamber. Our chemistry teacher, Mr. Mulholland, comes into the classroom and Nicole finally sits in her seat. Nicole has a very good figure even though she's slender. She has long, beautiful blonde hair, the kind you read about in storybooks, like spun gold, and she's friends with all the football players and cheerleaders. When she stopped eating lunch and walking home with me at the beginning of this year, I didn't understand what was happening at first, until I finally realized some people grow up faster than others, and that when you grow up, being popular and being liked are more important than anything else. I see her every day at school, out in the quad, with the boys in their letter jackets and all the other girls with colorful sweaters and shiny hair. When I pass her in the hall, she usually pretends she doesn't see me, and maybe she doesn't because she's always busy laughing and talking with her new friends. But every once in a while, she'll look right at me and smile and say, Hi, Molly! in her brightest, friendliest voice, as if admitting she knows me isn't going to embarrass her in front of the others. Sometimes, I can't believe she used to be my best friend, all the way through elementary school and junior high, that we would eat lunch and walk home together every day after school and sleep over at each other's houses on the weekends, Sometimes, I can't believe I ever knew her at all. And sometimes, late, after everyone's gone to sleep, and there's nothing but me and the blackness of my room and the sound of the cars rolling by in the night outside, I can't believe she's really left me behind forever. That will never whisper under the covers again after her mother's turned out the lights and said goodnight. 
and I still think of her as Nicole, my best friend, Nicole. And I wish some things never had to change. Even though I'm old enough now, my father won't let me take the test to get my driver's license. I have a learner's permit, but all that means is I have to have a grown-up in the car with me when I'm driving. So I drive my mom and dad everywhere. To the grocery, the dry cleaners, the Chinese takeout. Most of the time I'm okay except when I have to make a sudden decision. Stop signs and yellow lights seem to spring out of nowhere and I get so nervous I forget which pedal controls the brakes and which one is for the gas. My father will point his finger and say, turn left here. And suddenly I can't remember my right from my left. I ran a red light once while he was in the car with me and he yelled at me. His face so distorted with rage I started to cry and we had to pull over to the side of the road. Mall, he said, trying to comfort me. It's not that hard. I know it's not. I know I could do better. If only I was by myself. I dream about driving and in my dreams I'm always alone in the car, guiding it effortlessly as it smoothly and silently swallows up the empty road, gliding over endless miles of black ribboned asphalt. Winding through the gentle, sloping green hills that stretch all the way out to the unreachable horizon of my imaginary landscape. But in real life, I don't go anywhere. I can't do anything around here without a car. We live out in the suburbs, the neighborhood's flat and sprawling, the expanse as vast as some ancient mythical kingdom, glittering forever beneath the heartless desert sky. I used to watch a lot of TV, because at first, it seemed like that iridescent screen could open up the world and take me far away. But I know now those people and places aren't real. Not really. And after a while, all that drama and excitement seemed less an escape and more a reminder of how dreary my life really is. So nowadays, I just stay in my room and read. Sometimes when my mom and dad are out, I'll go up to the attic where we have a little room and listen to the stereo as I do my homework. Me and Nicole used to sit up there. We were supposed to be studying, but we'd spend most of our time memorizing and quizzing each other on the pop songs that would play over the radio. Quick, who sings this? Or, what's the name of this song? But those days are gone forever, and now it's just me, alone in the attic. Sometimes I like to pretend I'm a princess or even a queen of my own little kingdom where all the people love and adore me, and the attic is the tallest spire of my palace where I can look out over my realm. I crank up the radio as loud as it will go, imagining a wild, long-haired boy up there with me, playing electric guitar fast and free, eyes closed, fingers flying across the neck as he sits on his amplifier, the music so loud I can't even think. Or even a whole band, jamming a concert just for me and my friends the nerd queen in her rock and roll court. If I had any friends, that is. I know it sounds crazy, but I can't even force myself to think about anything real or substantial, like prom or college. Because right now, my future seems so distant, like it could belong to someone else, someone I might not even recognize, and nothing that far away can be impossible, not yet. It's only the reality of my present that's full of impossibilities like having Mark Sanford stop in the hallway to say hello or talk to me. I'm sitting here, all by myself again, back in the present, 
in the now, as my therapist likes to say. I just finished reading some of the things I wrote about back then, back before I got sent away, turning 16, driving, my ex-best friend Nicole, boys like Mark Sanford, all the stuff I was obsessing over, I guess. But the words, even the thoughts themselves seem strange, almost unfamiliar, like they must have come out of the brain of a different person. That was the old me, I tell myself. The one who liked to write and make up stories about herself. Who the new me is, I'm still not so sure. I've only been out of the hospital and back in school for a few months. Everyone knows about it, but they don't talk about it. The only person who's even mentioned it was the skaterboard guy. I was walking through the parking lot before school one morning, and he rolls up next to me and says, So dude, was it like a state or private institution? I just had to laugh. Sometimes I get a little bitter when I think about it. I don't know, the idea of friends, I guess, and what all that's supposed to mean. I've never even been able to figure it out. Maybe I never will. Sometimes I think back on some of the things that happened while I was in the hospital, like with the orderly, my orderly. And even if the doctors say I wasn't really responsible for what I was doing during that time, I still wonder if what I did was wrong, or if what he did was wrong, or if maybe both of us were like two people living in a parallel universe, doing and saying the exact same things as our devils, but with completely different meanings and intentions, never realizing or understanding what our mirror images were doing on that second earth hidden on the other side of the sun, or in whatever dimension that twin world might be. And there is another dimension, a parallel universe if that's what you want to call it, where some grown-ups and kids cross over to where their lives somehow intersect. I never noticed it before, but I see it in school now. It's right out in the open if you know what to look for. Some of the teachers at our school aren't that old, not for grown-ups anyway. And I have this English teacher, Miss Lewis, who looks kind of, I don't know, kind of wild, I guess, even though that's not the right word for it. Her hair is dyed red, and it's always kind of messy, and she wears maybe a little too much makeup, you know what I mean? I never even thought of it before, but last week, we were sitting in class and she got a call on her cell, and I could see she was really upset. It turned out her mom was sick and she had to leave right away. She got on her phone again and called someone, and a few minutes later, this guy comes into our classroom. Not another teacher. Not someone from the front office. But a kid like the rest of us. Except he doesn't look like a kid. He looks like some big guy in a motorcycle gang. He's a senior named Tony Shaheen, who everyone in school calls Stoney. Miss Lewis tells us that Stoney is going to sit here and watch us for the rest of the class, so no one better try anything stupid. Then she hugs Stoney and rushes out the door. Stoney pulls up a chair in front of the class and just sits there, scratching the black stubble on his chin staring at all of us with his heavy-lidded eyes. No one says a single word for the rest of the period, not even the big jocks in the class, until the bell rings and we all hurry out of there, everyone whispering about Mrs. Lewis and Stoney Shaheen. And then, just a couple days ago, this boy at our school, David Dirk, was telling everyone how he was going to ask Debbie Mallon, a girl in my ear, to prom. And all the other kids were laughing behind his back, 
saying how could he not know Debbie Mallon is the vice principal's girlfriend. Everyone knows that. I didn't know it, that's for sure. But I realized then that it was all around me. Like in those movies where the heroine suddenly gains the power to look through the mirror to another world that exists side by side with our own, and for the first time she can see all the monsters and demons and angels that live secretly among us. Stephen Goldstein asked me out today. I can hardly believe it, but I don't even know him. He sits behind me in trigonometry, and he's in my biology class too, but still, I didn't see it coming. When we were in ninth grade, we were both voted best student or brainiest or something geeky like that, and had our pictures taken in the yearbook Hall of Fame section. I'm not even sure exactly what he said to me after class when he asked me out. All I can remember thinking as he stood there in front of me, his hands resting on the back of one of those chairs, was that I might be taller than him. He has a slight build which makes him look shorter than he really is. Brown hair speckled like sand at the beach, and gold wire frame glasses. But what I really think of when I see him is how he looks more like a little man than a boy my age. His brown eyes so quiet and serious. I put down my brush, trying to stare past the image in the mirror and wonder what he sees when he looks at me. Does he think we have something in common just because we're in the same AP class? Or does he see a person I can't even begin to imagine? I feel worried suddenly that he might think I'm someone I can't possibly be. And the thought of disappointing even a stranger's expectations looms large and frightening, like the prospect of another lost friendship. I put down my brush and hurry to change into my clothes. My mom and dad are all smiles when Steven arrives to pick me up. I know my mom is pleased. She's always talking about how I should go out with nice boys, as if I've ever gone out with anyone at all. Or maybe it's just that she can read my mind, the way some mothers read their daughter's mail, opening and resealing the envelopes without a trace. Both of my parents are acting perfectly friendly while they talk to Stephen in our living room. But what I'm thinking is how grown-ups, my parents especially, are always nicer to people they don't know. But maybe I'm being unfair. I remember Nicole told me once how one of her boyfriends came over to take her out to a movie and he was dead drunk and he had to sit there on the couch in their living room talking to her mom and dad while she was still getting ready in her room. Nicole said she was so afraid afterwards about what her parents would say, but all they told her later was that he was a very handsome young man. I feel sad for a minute because I know all the boys who come to Nicole's house must be good looking. But then my parents are finished with Steven and we say goodnight and I go to the car. The movie we're seeing is terrible, just awful. Or else maybe it's just that I'm so nervous, I'm somehow projecting my own anxieties directly onto the screen and ruining the film for everyone. It's a science fiction movie and I've read the book, but the movie's nowhere near as good. So maybe that's why I'm not enjoying it. But Steven read the book too, and he's staring straight ahead with glue-eyed fascination. On the drive over to the theater, he reminded me that we talked about the book once after class. That must be why he asked me out. He recounted our entire conversation almost word for word, and although his recollection sounded perfectly reasonable, I don't even remember talking to him. I don't tell him that, of course, but I secretly wonder to myself if these are the kinds of mistaken connections that bring people together in real life. I peek over at him and he's still watching the movie. 
I turned back to the screen. The evil prince, played by a handsome pop star with spiky blonde hair and a sinister smirk, steps out of his futuristic steam bath, the camera lingering over him for a moment, his nearly naked body sleek and gleaming. I'm staring at all the little muscles strung across his chest and shoulders, and the neat, horizontal rows his ribs form on either side. And all of a sudden, I feel like my whole body is holding its breath and I'm rushing in the dark through a forest full of Christmas trees, branches, and needles brushing against me, little sharp tingles running up and down my skin. For just that second, it seemed as if everyone in the audience must be watching me and knowing exactly what's going on inside me. But then the camera cuts away and the scene shifts, and I'm anonymous again, sitting in a dark room with strangers. After the movie, we don't go home right away. We drive around for a little while. The car is very comfortable, with puffy leather seats and a smooth ride. And it's almost like being in one of my dreams, except I'm not driving. Stephen finally pulls over to the curb on a wide, quiet street lined with tall, leafy trees and sleeping houses. I start feeling tense, thinking about expectations again. But he just sits and talks about the movie. I relax and try to listen to what he's saying, but I can't follow him at all. His words flow out one after another before I can attach any meaning to them, like bubbles blown from a bottle, as if he's trying to cast a spell or build a bridge with them, filling the space between us. I reach over to turn on the radio, but no music comes out. Stephen adjusts the key in the ignition and the radio squeaks drowsily. Bright little dots and zigzags of red and green lighting of the dashboard. Molly, he says, and my name sounds strange when he says it, like he has a mouthful of marbles, and I wonder for the first time if maybe he's more nervous than I am. He starts to talk again, but I'm suddenly aware of something coming up the street, a ripple gliding in the shadow of the trees. I glimpse a splash of white as someone emerges from a splotchy blackness and comes toward us. As he draws closer, I can see that it's a boy in shorts and a t-shirt, running on the near side of the street in the bicycle lane. His dark hair is wet with sweat even though it's a cool night, and he lowers his head slightly as he runs, as if leaning into the wind. He strides nearer, frowning with concentration and I can tell he doesn't even notice us sitting here in the car. Only right as he's passing by does he happen to glance inside the window, and I watch as his eyes flash wide with startled surprise. Then he's gone, down the street, fading away into the night. I started thinking about the jogger right after Stephen took me home. I didn't know who he was or think he was cute or anything like that, but I still wondered about him. If I was going out with Steven and we parked in the same spot every night, would we always see him come by at the same time? Or had he just decided to run that one night for some crazy reason all his own? I tried to imagine myself running through the empty streets, past dimly lit windows with TV sets flickering inside, the clink of silverware on a kitchen table, a housewife in curlers peering out through her screen door, sprinklers hissing on a wet lawn, the glint of a cat's eyes it crouches in a driveway, past innumerable lives, all of them breathing and dreaming to the beat of their own hearts as I run by. I felt mad at first, 
that I wasn't a boy and couldn't do whatever I wanted to, like the boy I saw jogging. But that was stupid, I thought. It shouldn't really matter if I was a boy or a girl. Everyone has certain choices to make. Like the jogger, who didn't care if he had a girlfriend or a date for Friday night, but just went running instead, taking possession of his life with every step and breath. The laces on my new shoes are long and skinny, like spaghetti noodles. So I tie them in a double bow to keep them from flopping over the sides. When my parents saw my running shoes, they got into a panic, as if it might be the start of something else that could end up with me having to be sent away again. I finally told them I was thinking of trying out for the girls' cross-country team because it might help my chances of getting into college later on. They ended up helping pay for the shoes. I bounced up and down a few times to loosen up. My dad didn't want me running by myself at night, but after I made fun of him and his worrying, he finally gave up and went off in a disgusted sulk. Our neighborhood is so safe, it's ridiculous. It's considered a major crime when boys from my school leave half-empty beer bottles in the parking lot over the weekend. I step outside and it is much cooler than I had expected. The chill air lapping around my bare arms and legs like icy water. I glance up at the black sky and start forward hesitantly. There is a soft breeze blowing through the trees, gently rattling the leaves and branches with a low whisper. I stop for a moment and listen to the sound and it is as if the night is filled with couples murmuring in the dark. You've been listening to Running Shoes by Kenneth Kim. Thanks for listening to Creative Writing Out Loud, the podcast for fiction and poetry. Music by Simon Mathewson. Visit creativewritingoutloud.com to subscribe to our email list and like us on Facebook. Tune in next week for new fiction and poetry from American writers. See you then.